Well, the date was December 7th, 1941. If you're over a certain age here today, you know exactly what date I'm talking about. For those of you who are younger or might not know, this was basically the September 11th of a previous generation. It was the day the landscape of the world changed. The American president at the time, Franklin Roosevelt, called it a date which will live in infamy. Date which will live in infamy. You know what happened that day? It was the middle of World War II, and the nation of Japan sprung a surprise attack on the United States, who up till that time had stayed out of the war. Japan sent an armada of planes to attack the naval base of Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. 2,400 people were killed. Thousands more were injured. The attack really backfired and awoke what was a sleeping giant of America's military strength. And they started to swing the tide of the war away from the Germans and Japanese and the Axis powers. But imagine with me being at Pearl Harbor that day. That one day would have changed your life in many ways. Most of them probably negatively. And that one event forever linked thousands of men and women, those who survived the attack, they could say for the rest of their lives, I was at Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. Well, there have been many tragic days in the history of our sin-stained world. Disasters and tragedies and wars, famines, plagues, many terrible days. But there is one day that I believe stands above them all It's a day that we commemorate around this time of year, and we call it Good Friday. The date that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, died. Today, this Sunday, it's actually Palm Sunday, but since we don't have a Good Friday service here on our own, we do encourage you to go to the ones around the city, but since we don't have a Good Friday service here, I wanted to look ahead a bit to what took place because I felt it was really important to look at what happened on Good Friday. We don't know the exact historical date that this took place, but it really is a day that lives on in infamy. Today we're going to look at what our response to that day should be. See, for the Americans at Pearl Harbor, their response to that day was very united, to fight back, and fight back they did. But with Good Friday, there were many different responses, and they were all extremely different. And with an event like Pearl Harbor, people's response didn't last. Seventy years later, and it's not really affecting us anymore. But with Good Friday, it has eternal impact. It should be affecting us forever. So 2,000 years later, what should our response be? to Jesus' death on the cross on Good Friday be. We're going to dig into the story in the Gospel of Luke. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 22. 
Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. But before we do this, I want to dedicate the time that we look at God's word to him. All right, let's pray. Lord, today we come to look at your cross, to ponder your sacrifice, and ponder our response. Holy Spirit, please help us learn from this text and help us be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we're going to do today is read through the account of Jesus' death and look at how people in this story responded to Jesus' death. We don't have time to look at everyone's responses. There are many, but we're going to choose a few key ones to examine and focus on. And we'll see if any of these responses are ones that we should follow ourselves. Now, many of you might think, as we come to this, why do we need to have a response to the cross? What's the big deal about Jesus dying on a cross? I'll say this. Good Friday and Easter Sunday were the two most defining days of all of history. This was really the climax of God's redemption plan. Without the cross... We would have no reason to be here today. There would be no church, no Christians, no salvation, and no gospel. In the history of the world, there has never been a greater demonstration of love, never a greater showing of mercy or grace, never a greater example of God's holiness and justice displayed. Our response to the cross and the empty tomb determine our eternal destiny. The stakes could not be any higher. The importance could not be any greater. And how we respond is important to everyone, whether you're a non-Christian, a new Christian, or an old Christian. We all have to respond to the cross. And so when we look at how we should respond to this, this is a crucial and eternal matter. In this passage that we'll look at today, the first response we're going to look at is actually right before Good Friday on the Thursday night of Jesus' Passion Week. So this is in the middle of this week, after the triumphal entry, around the time of the Last Supper. We're going to begin reading at the beginning of Luke chapter 22. So Luke 22, verse 1, says this. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. For they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Skip ahead a bit in the chapter to verse 39. Verse 39, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. 
An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Stop there. In these verses that I just read, we see the disciple Judas' response to Jesus' coming death. And while we can't do the exact thing that Judas does here, it is possible, I believe, to respond to Jesus' death in the same vein, in a similar fashion. The first response we can have to the cross is this, that in light of the cross, like Judas, we can become Jesus' enemies. We can respond to the cross like Judas did, become his enemy. That's what Judas essentially became here. He fully betrayed Jesus to death, became his enemy. Verse 3 says that Satan actually entered Judas. You can't become more of an enemy than that. Elsewhere, Judas is called the son of perdition, a devil, and he's compared to the Antichrist. Have you noticed some of the most popular names for Christian kids, like for parents to name their children today, are the disciples' names. Matthew, pretty good name, I might add. John, James, Peter, Thomas, Andrew, Philip, Simon. But have you ever noticed no one calls their kid Judas? I wonder why. Because he's the opposite of what we want our kids to be like. We want our kids to be Jesus' friends and his disciples, not his enemies. How many of you ever played the board game Risk before? Where you try to conquer the world using a lot of strategy and a lot of luck. At the same time, early on in my relationship with Angela, when we were dating, I made myself basically an enemy of Angela's for a night as we played Risk for the first time. It took her years before she would ever play with me again. See, we both have very competitive blood flowing through our veins. And in risk, I love taking the continent of Australia first. See, this is my strategy. Often the winner of the game, I believe, comes from Australia. It's the easiest continent to conquer, to defend, and launch attacks from. But anyway, in this game, we were playing with a few members of Angela's family. And we both ended up with armies in Australia. And we both put all of our men in Australia. And like the nice, loving boyfriend that I was, I promptly wiped her off the board on the first turn of the game. (laughs) And for the rest of that night, I was pretty much Angela's sworn enemy. She would have rather spent time with anyone else in the world than with me. She was not talking with me. It wasn't good. Now, that's a funny example of being enemies, of enmity between people. And she eventually forgave me. But being enemies of Jesus is no laughing matter. How do people become enemies of Jesus? 
Judas became Jesus' enemy with something as innocent as a kiss. In verse 48, Jesus sadly asked Judas, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? We can become Jesus' enemies in many different ways. There's direct opposition. Something that many people in our world have towards Jesus. There's a lot of antagonism towards Christ these days. Arguing against or trying to refute his message or his word. Some just willingly misrepresenting his message. Others proudly claim atheism or naturalism or pantheism or whateverism. And on the other side, there's indirect opposition. Where we might not even know we're opposing him. When we ignore or disobey his commands, whether purposely or not. Or when we put something else in our lives above God. Making an idol. The Bible is full of examples that show that worshiping idols or following idols makes an enemy of God. Now, none of us have been indwelt by Satan like Judas was. But I believe we are all guilty of becoming Jesus' enemies like Judas did. And you might be like, whoa, I'm not Jesus' enemy. What are you talking about? Colossians 1.21 says that once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Because of our evil behavior, our sins, we have all become God's enemies. The verse right after that in Colossians says, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. That's the cross. By Christ's physical body, through death, he has turned enemies into friends and into his own children. Judas never got the chance to accept this offer of reconciliation. You know how his story ended? His guilt drove him crazy, and he killed himself. But you have a chance to respond. Unlike Judas. You have a chance to respond to the cross in the right way. Today, you have a chance to turn from God's enemy to his friend at the foot of the cross. So I ask you, are you an enemy of Jesus? I pray that if you are, you will be willing to change today. I'm going to continue the story. We're going to see some more responses of people to Jesus. The second one I want to highlight is not actually from one person. It's from many people, many different people in this story leading up to Jesus' death. And this response is sadly that in light of the cross, like many people, we can mock Jesus. We can respond to the cross by mocking it and or mocking Jesus, just like many people did on his crucifixion day. Look at this theme that keeps coming up in this story. I'm going to start in 22, Luke 22, verse 63. It says, The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. 
At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I ask you, you will not answer. For from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you are right in saying I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Skip ahead to chapter 23, verse 8. Jesus is before Herod now. It says, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. Skip ahead one more time to verse 35. And now Jesus is on the cross. It says, The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Stop there. Do you know what mocking is? Do you know what mocking is? The dictionary defines mocking as to attack, or treat with ridicule, contempt, or derision. It's literally a kind of attack. Not physical, but psychological, emotional, mental. As if the physical pain that Jesus was going through wasn't enough, he was incessantly mocked. The soldiers guarding him, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, King Herod and his soldiers, the local rulers, the soldiers of the cross, and even a fellow crucified man. They all mocked him. Have you ever seen a roast before? Not the uh, nice meal that we like on Sundays, but the quote-unquote comedy event where people are roasted. (laughs) It's basically, it's an event where some famous person is put on a stage and people take turns insulting them, making fun of them, laughing at them, just bringing up all sorts of things to make fun of. And people find this funny. And all of the things that are said at a roast may be true, they may be false, they may be exaggerations. But here's the thing, the person that's being roasted is supposed to take all of these in good humor. They're supposed to take them as really kind of a backwards kind of compliment. And they're supposed to be honored by it. It's really weird, I'll tell you that. But these celebrities or politicians, whoever is on the stage, they see it as an honor to be roasted. I saw a recent video clip of Donald Trump being roasted, and it was brutal. (laughs) Like, by the end of the night, even people who didn't like Donald Trump in the least felt really sorry for him (laughs) by the things that people were saying. 
But here's the thing. Jesus, on the night that, and the day that he was crucified, was essentially roasted. Except there was no comedic value. There was no laughing matter. There was no good-natured ribbing. There was no appropriate laughter. It was the opposite of an honor. And everything that he was accused of was false. Did you see in this passage how Jesus was mocked? The men guarding him originally, and they blindfolded and accused him of being of not being all-knowing. In 2263, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And then it says they said many other insulting things as well. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, they basically said, you're not the son of God. Okay, when so Jesus claimed to be the son of God, they replied, or they, they asked, are you then the son of God? He replied, you are right in saying I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Call him not the son of God. Herod and his soldiers were ridiculing him and claiming to be king. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed him, mocked him, dressing him up in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. The rulers watching the crucifixion mocked him that he couldn't be the Messiah, couldn't be the Savior. Verse 35, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, or the Messiah, the Chosen One. And the first thief on the cross said similar. Aren't you the Christ? Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. You notice something in these? Every time Jesus was mocked, something about who he was was called into the question. Did you see that? You're not the Son of God. You're not all-knowing. You're not the King. You're not the Messiah. You're not the Savior. Think of what the equivalent kind of mocking would be for you. Of someone questioning you, who you are, your character. For you who are kids, you're in what grade in school? You're so dumb for your age. You think you're called to be a doctor? Or a nurse? <laughs> or maybe just straight insults. You are the meanest, most self-righteous, ignorant person I have ever met. You don't deserve to wear that uniform that you wear. You think you're a Christian? Jesus would be ashamed of you. How would those make you feel? Torn down? Beaten? Abused? Be brutal. And that's how Jesus was treated for us. And that's before we get to the physical treatment, which was no less than torture. The world is full of people who mock Christ to this day. That laugh at him, belittle him, question him, cast doubt on him. Maybe you've felt this before. 
people saying something like, huh, you believe in Christ, in Jesus? That's such an antiquated belief. No one with half a brain believes in Jesus anymore. Foolishness in the eyes of the world. But you know what? I would say that every one of us is guilty as well of this mocking. Just like we're guilty of being his enemies, we are guilty of mocking Christ. And you'll probably object and say, no way, I haven't mocked Christ before. I've never done anything like these people. But have we? Have we mocked Christ? Have we mocked God by claiming that he's our Lord and our King and then living our life as if that has no bearing Hypocrisy is definitely a form of mockery. It tells the world, my God shouldn't mean much to you because it doesn't mean much to me. Maybe we've mocked him by thinking, nobody will ever find out about this sin. But God is all-knowing. He's present everywhere. And we will give an account When we deliberately sin, we are mocking the blood of Christ spilled on the cross. Hebrews 10 says that when we deliberately keep on sinning, we effectively spurn or trample on the Son of God. We profane his blood or treat it as unholy, and we insult the Holy Spirit. That's a scary thought. It's terrifying. Maybe we've mocked God by the promises we've made that we haven't kept. Maybe our wedding vows. Maybe we've mocked God by taking his holy name in vain, using it as a swear word. Maybe we've mocked God by selfishly asking him for things or using God. That's what the first thief on the cross did. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. And us. Do you think he really cared about Jesus saving himself? No. And the Bible said that was many insults. Maybe we mock God by putting our own interests above his. Building our pride up. And in the process, effectively saying, you're not God, and I am. Don't you see We've all mocked Jesus. We've all mocked his death. Whether by our words or our thoughts or our actions. As the song we'll sing later says, when we can all honestly sing at the foot of the cross, ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Shamed. So we've seen that we're guilty of being Jesus' enemies like Judas. And we're guilty like many of mocking Jesus for who he is. And when we see things like this that bring our guilt to the forefront, it often sends us into a frenzy of trying to fix things. 
trying to fix things between us and God, make things right. But I think we can easily fall into another trap at the end of the pendulum when it swings the other way. And it comes out in another response that we see from a character in this story. And here's the principle. In light of the cross, like Pilate, we can attempt to be innocent of Jesus' death. We have all sorts of ways that we try to clear ourselves of our guilt. And like Pilate, we can attempt to be innocent of Jesus' death by our own power. We're going to read in chapter 23 at the very beginning of verse 1. But Pilate tried every way he could think of to try to get out of killing Christ. He tried first to tell the people that he didn't find him guilty. It says, Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Okay, so he tried to tell them, He's innocent, I don't find a charge. When that didn't work, he tried to pass off the problem to another ruler. Read in verse 5. But they insisted he stirs up the people over all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. So Herod, this is a different Herod than the king at Jesus' birth. But he was over Galilee, and Herod, or Pilate finds out that Jesus is Galilean, so he sends him off to Herod, trying to get rid of the problem. But all Herod did was mock Jesus and send him back to Pilate. We already read verse 8, but 8 to 12, it says, Then Herod and the soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became, became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. So Pilate, he gets Jesus back, and he tries once again to quell the people. And he says in verse 13, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers of the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But they'd have none of it. And demanded that they crucify him. And we learn in other gospels Jesus had, that Pilate had a tradition at this time of the year around the Passover of releasing one criminal to the people that they chose, just as a way to show some grace to the people, releasing someone. And so he thought the people would obviously choose this innocent man, Jesus. But they surprised him. And they chose a notorious murderer named Barabbas. In verse 18. With one voice they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. So Pilate tried again to release Jesus. The text said he wanted to release him, but the crowd kept shouting, Crucify! In verse 20, wanting to release Jesus. Pilate wanted to release him. Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him. And then he tried one final time. For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found him in no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him punished and then release him. 
But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Eventually, the intense peer pressure got too much for Pilate to handle. The political climate got too strong. See, Pilate was afraid of a riot here. The job that he had been put in charge of by Caesar himself was to keep the peace in the area that he ruled as governor. So he, his job was to keep the peace in Palestine. And as he sees these people getting madder and madder and madder, it's like, I think I have to give in to them. Listen to what Matthew 27 says about this. It says, When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. Pilate even tried to wash his hands as he signed his death warrant. Later in the Bible, Pilate is grouped together with those who killed Jesus. He wasn't innocent. In Acts 4, the apostles prayed to God. They said, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. So Pilate tried again and again and again to get out of killing Jesus. And even when he did send him off to be crucified, he tried to wash his hands of the matter. Even though he was guilty. And I think every one of us try to do the same thing. We hear we're guilty of being enemies and mocking Jesus. And the natural thing for us to do is to try to cleanse ourselves. I'm not guilty of this. Someone else did it. But you know we're guilty of more than that? Let me ask you a question. Who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? It's a tricky question. If I were to give you a test with this question on it, and you had to fill in the little bubble on the side by, who killed Jesus? Was it... Pilate? Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? Was it Satan? Was it God's wrath? What would you choose? Many answers have been given to this question over the years, and depending on what way you look at it, it does have many answers. It has many answers. Judas betrayed him. The Jews arrested and prosecuted him. Pilate sentenced him. The Romans carried out the sentence. Satan was always working behind the scenes, and God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. But, think about this. Jesus didn't need to go along with any of that. Did he? He didn't have to go along with it. He's all-powerful. He could have called down the legions of angels to save him. But he didn't. Why? Because he loved us. John 3.16 For God so loved the world 
and because our sins demanded sacrifice. Our sins demanded a sacrifice and a punishment. So who killed Christ? It's the last bubble that I didn't give you. All of the above. And that includes our sin. Our sin is the reason he went to die. To pay for them. To pay for our sins. We are also guilty of Jesus' death. It was my sin that held him there. It was your sin that held him there. And in God's infinite wisdom, it's Christ's death that makes us innocent. Yet we try, consciously and unconsciously, to come up with ways to pardon ourselves. We try to work a bit harder. We try to read our Bibles a little bit more. We want to do a little bit more in the church, to serve a little more, to pray a little bit more, give a little more, to worship more, to go to church more, to go on mission trips more, to evangelize more. And these are all good things. But not one of them can remove your guilt. Only the blood of the Lamb that was slain will get you forgiven. Are you trying to do something today to earn God's favor? To earn his forgiveness, to earn his love? I'll tell you right now, it's not going to work. Only Christ's blood. Today is the day to get back to recognizing God's grace in your life. We have done all of the above. We have become God's enemies. We have mocked him. And our sins killed him. But the last response we'll see today in this passage isn't something that we all have necessarily done. Many of us have. Some of us probably haven't. And some of us might need to do so again. And that is that in light of the cross, like the second criminal, we can throw ourselves on Jesus' mercy. The right response to the cross is to simply throw ourselves on Jesus' mercy. Let's see how this man responded. Read with me in chapter 23, verse 39. It says, one of the criminals, this is the first one, who hung there, hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining. 
and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The first man mocked. The second man humbled himself. And Jesus clearly approved of and affirmed the second man's response. Do you notice what this man said? Don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly. People complain today that God's punishment for sin is too harsh or too unjust. But it's not. It's completely and 100% just and holy. If only we had the same response of this man. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. And just like the criminals here that were dying, what we deserve is death. Romans 6.23, for the wages or the punishment of sin is death. The cross was God's perfect solution of satisfying his own justice. As the criminal said, but this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus was innocent. Jesus died as a perfect sacrifice, a spotless lamb, to pay for our sins. Tim Keller says that at the cross, all the attributes of God win. That's his love, his holiness, his justice, and his mercy. They all win. And that's what turned the worst Friday, no, the worst day in history, into what we call Good Friday. And this man had the perfect response to Jesus. Verse 42, Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Simply remember me. I'm getting what I deserve, but can you remember me? He threw himself upon the mercy of the court. Do you notice the difference between the two thieves' response? They both asked to be saved by Jesus. They did. But the first one selfishly asked to be saved physically. The second one asked to be saved spiritually. And how did Jesus respond? Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. He gave him mercy. And that's the promise he gives us too. If we throw ourselves on his mercy, he will remember us one day. And he will bring us home to be with him. Have you thrown yourself on Jesus' mercy before? said, Jesus, I know my sins have made me your enemy. And I have mocked you repeatedly with my lifestyle. And I cannot become clean on my own. I need you to cleanse me. Forgive me. Forgive me of my sins. Become my Savior. Turn from the now to follow you. 
He'll honor that request. One day, you will be with him in paradise. Maybe today you need to make that decision for the first time. To ask Jesus for mercy. Maybe today you need to rededicate yourself to the one who died for you. Maybe today you need to just be reminded of what it cost Jesus to save you. Reignite your wonder. Maybe you just need to say, Jesus, you have saved me, I know that, but I've still been mocking you with the way I'm living. I need to get right with you again. Come cleanse me. I'll live for you. Whatever situation you're in today, we'd love to help you talk Help talk you through it, answer any questions you have. Please come talk to me or one of the other leaders of the church afterwards. But in light of the cross, in light of the cross, you, no matter what you've done in your life, can be forgiven and made holy today through Christ's mercy alone. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are so undeserving of your grace. We have effectively spat in your face again and again. And yet you died for us, enduring all the shame that that brought you. We come to you humbly today. We come to you broken over our sin. We pray that you would remember us. You give us grace. Help us to live for you. Ask this in the name of the Lamb that was slain for us, Jesus Christ. Amen. Some of you today might think, if you haven't heard this story before, that this is a bit of a downer of a message. It's not, because we can be forgiven. But you don't know part two. Today was part one of the story. It should put like a to-be-continued on the screen or something. And next Sunday we'll gather to celebrate part two. And what God did after the cross with Jesus. I'll give you a spoiler Everything changes. History changes. And our lives change forever. I hope you'll join us. Have a great week. You're dismissed.